You playing a joke on me, Hank? <laughs> Good morning. Well, we're going to go a little old school today. I don't have a PowerPoint presentation prepared because I didn't want to get caught up in my slides. I really wanted to focus on this particular topic, and it's such a delicate one that uh, I didn't want to be moving back and forth. There's a lot of moving parts, and I want to make sure that I focus. This is actually one of the rare occasions where I have brought my entire sermon transcript with me. Because I want to make sure that uh, we carefully, carefully understand this very delicate doctrine uh, of free will. What, just what is free will. But before we do that, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, today as we sit here in your house, sitting before your table that you have instituted as your holy sacrament... This is from you, Lord Jesus. Um, we do not come to this table based upon our own ideas. This was something you instituted for us. Before us is the bread and the grape juice. But there is no physical nourishment in such a small piece of bread and in such a small sip of grape juice. No physical nourishment to be had. But here we come today to be nourished spiritually as we ponder upon what you did on the cross for us and that all of us take from the one body because you are a God who shows no partiality but through one man many have been made righteous and that through our faith in Jesus Christ by the sacrifice of his body and blood on the cross of Calvary, all those who believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ are saved and are one. We are one body as you, Christ, has laid down your one body. And so we want to, Lord, it is my prayer that the Holy Spirit would convict us in this time that we might contemplate one another and contemplate what you have done for us as we move forward, Lord Today to take your supper. We thank you for it, Lord. Don't let this be a time of morbid introspection as to whether or not we are worthy. But all of us must, as we take the bread and as we drink the cup of grape juice, ask the question, do we really believe what these things symbolize? Do we really believe that it's Christ's body and not my body? That it was Christ's blood and not my blood that paid away all of the debts that we owed to you? That it was Christ who redeemed us. And that we are in fact one body. That there is no partiality with you God. That you do not save based upon anything foreseen in man. Any act of righteousness. You are not impressed with our wealth or our success or our intelligence or our physical beauty. But that you chose us based upon your mercy alone. Let us say thank you, the, those of us today who acknowledge Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior are doing so based upon your gracious act of mercy to bring us in to the family of God. Holy Spirit, convict hearts this morning as we continue to learn about the foundations of our faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. It's so important that we understand what we believe, and not only what we believe, but why we believe what we believe. It's very common in certain faiths that you know the main tenets of the faith, but knowing the main tenets of the faith and not knowing why you believe those tenets is death to your faith. Leads ultimately into incoherence. That's why Christ said we are to make disciples of every nation. Disciples are learners. Christian, you've been called to be a lifelong learner. One of the worst things that has happened in the American church today, dare I say the global church today, is that we teach that the word of God or that the Christian life is based solely on emotions. But the Bible has told us that the emotions cannot be changed and should not be swayed apart from true doctrine. We must know what we believe and why we believe it. So we are continuing our series in the basic 
Christianity or in the foundations of Christianity. And in our confession of faith, in the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, we see that in between these two important articles, Article 8 and Article 9, each article dealing with a particular theological topic, Article 8 dealing with Christ the Mediator, and Article 10 dealing with uh, uh, effectual calling, they place squarely in the middle the topic of free will. And that is not by accident. In between the great doctrine of who Christ is, what we might call Christology, the study of Jesus Christ, the Bible has a Christology, men have a Christology, which one is right? We, of course, know that the Bible is the revealed and inspired Word of God. It is infallible. It is without error. And so we take what the Word of God says about Christ and that Christ is the only mediator between God and man. He is the one that reconciles us to God. And that reconciliation is not simply a geographical reconciliation. We haven't lost God. We have rebelled against God. God is omnipresent. He is with us wherever we are. And so God is, not, God is not lost, but we have rebelled. We have gone away from God. And our location is one before we come to Christ the mediator that constantly has its back turned to the Lord Almighty. But Christ is the one who gives us the ability to enter into relationship with God, the Father. And then we begin to talk about what that relationship now is. And we, we talk about that as salvation. We use the word salvation. And that's a word that needs to be explained. Because a lot of times in the church today, the word salvation is pitched off as the best life you can have now. You're told that if you'll just believe in God, all of your dreams will come true. And if you just send $100 today, you'll get 1000 at the end. God is ready to give you money. He's ready to bring that beautiful woman into your life, that handsome man, that doctor. But you got to just trust him. But that's not what the Bible means when it talks about salvation. It talks about salvation of our souls. That in the real salvation of God, we must be willing to lose our lives here and now so that we might have life eternally in the later, after death. But then the question becomes, okay, before we explain all this, what is our role? What do we do? What, is, what about us? And so today... We're going to talk about free will. Because it's something that has to be dealt with before we explain all of the marvelous works of what God has done to save us. And I, and I tell you this because if you cannot grasp, if you do not grasp, if you fail to grasp this all-important teaching of free will from a biblical perspective, it will severely inhibit your ability to worship God truly. You will think, if we do not explain what free will is, that you come to church to get something for you. That is an androcentric worship. That is, that you come to see what can I get out of church today. You're here because you're here for you. How does your life become impacted today? But in reality, God wants us to be theocentric in our worship. We are here today to serve him. Now think about that. Most of us got out of bed today asking the question, how will I get? Or what will I get today from my church? Some of us didn't get, didn't get past our sheets because we thought we weren't going to get anything out of today's service. And so we stayed home at Bedside Baptist with Pastor Sheets. But 
The Bible tells us that real worship is worship that is based upon our service to God. It is Paul who tells us in Romans 12 that in light of the mercies of God, in light of what God has done in salvation, if, if, we, if we do not dispel this myth of human free will, in light of what God has done for us, we will not worship or offer our lives as living sacrifices as our spiritual worship. We must understand that in the role of our salvation, we are wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, passive in the matter. Remember this truth. God saves sinners. There's much confusion as to what role we play in our salvation. Some assume that God has equipped us with enough goodness in our fallen state to reach out and find him all on our own. Human beings, they say, by themselves, possess the ability to please God without needing any form of divine intervention. You'll hear this from time to time. People who say, we found God in a hopeless place. I, I don't know if that's what they say. I think it's we found love in a hopeless place. We found God when we were on the boat. We, were, we found God as we were drinking peyote. As we were involved in various uh, drug-induced states. As we were trying to, trying to uh, and this is real, trying to move into meditative states where we have ecstasy. Where we, our spirit transcends the body and we are one with God. The Bible tells us that you cannot find God that way. Others assume that we're in fact corrupted by our sins and we stand in needs of God, need of God's fatherly hand to provide us with the ability to do good works with one exception, that the act of faith in Jesus is our one sole duty. According to this view, we alone have the power in ourselves to exercise faith in Christ apart from any internal call by the Spirit. So that we can talk about when we came forward to accept Christ by faith. And I think that that's a completely valid way to speak about our salvation. I came to know the Lord as my Savior when I was nine. I think that's true. But this second view believes that it's true apart from the inward working of the Spirit. Here's the third view. There are others. I'm going to go ahead and show my end early. This is my view. Who believe that we possess no ability whatsoever to turn from our wicked ways and to live for Christ. Even the very act of our putting trust and faith in Christ Jesus, that is our responding to the outward call of the message of the good news of Jesus Christ, was completely the work of the Holy Spirit who has enabled us by a new birth to respond to the outward call of the gospel. Then there's a fourth view, and this is squarely outside of the Christian tradition, from those who believe that Jesus was merely a man, a teacher who taught a certain way to live, and that we freely may choose to follow his message and possess the keys to living our best life now. That's not a Christian teaching. At the very least, all of these views acknowledge that human beings are in need and that Christ possesses something that can help satisfy our needs. He's not just a, a person in history, but a very important person in history. He has something that we all need. It's why we've been studying him for 2,000 years. It's why we take the most precious materials that we have. We take leather, the early Bibles, every page was written on vellum, which was animal skin. Incredibly expensive were these books. And we put gold around it because it's a treasure. There's something in it for us. But the question that we have to answer this morning is, what is this treasure? What role do we play in receiving this treasure? 
This ultimately comes down to the question of free will. Well, what is free will? Typically, when we think of the term free will, we're concerned with our liberty to make choices based upon our greatest desires and not the desires of someone else. Americans don't have a lot of long-standing traditions. We're a very, very young country. 1776 is when our country was first founded. But one of the fundamental things that every American believes in is the right to liberty. It's the thing that binds us together. The concept of freedom. And that that freedom is for life and for the pursuit of happiness. That we should not be compelled by others to follow their way of life. No, this is a land where we choose to follow our way of life. Our free will. Oxford defines liberty as the state of being free within society from oppressive restrictions imposed by authority of one's way of life, behavior, or political views. It is liberty that is the very basis which keeps our country from falling. It is the mountain or the foundation upon which our country stands or falls. America was built on the concept of liberty and justice for all. Of course, very few stop to ponder just how liberty and justice work together since justice implies some sort of injustice and further that society owes every victim of injustice, justice. But what we're talking about this morning is not the liberties we've been granted by virtue of being born in a country that holds the truths of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to be self-evident. And one of the first things that we have to do as Christians when we study ethics, which is the way we determine what is the right thing to do? One of the first things that we have to do as believers is we have to separate the law of God from the law of the state. Well, the law of the state says that two men or two women may marry, may enter into a union of marriage. But the word of God tells us that marriage is only between one man and one woman. And so the question is whether or not which one determines what is right? Of course, we believe it's God. And so our liberty, even in America, is not an absolute liberty. What we're talking about this morning is the concept of free will, by which I mean our ability to make choices based solely on our deepest desires at a particular moment and the responsibility that comes along with making those choices. That is to say that our will is never coerced absolutely. Either by God or by man or by nature. But our will is solely based upon our strongest desires at a given moment. That is what I mean by free will. So do we possess a free will? And I think the answer to that question is most obviously yes. How could anyone deny that it was we who made the decision to get up this morning? To drive our cars to McDonald's. To order a bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit with two hash browns. Because you know you can't just eat one at McDonald's. Has your mother ever made anything as good as that hash brown? My dad used to say, son, come home, and I'll make you hash browns that taste ten times better than McDonald's. And I would say, fake news, dad. Impossible. You cannot. That deep fried hash brown at McDonald's is delicioso. You start to speak in Spanglish when you find something that good. It was our choice to marry the person who sits next to us who eats their sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddle. 
It was our choice to yell at the children this morning. It was our choice to wear the clothes we wore this morning. And, and on and on we go. We make real choices based upon our greatest desire. We do. And so the idea this morning that there's no such thing as a free will, we have to get rid of that idea because it's obvious to us all that we all have a free will. That is that we make the choices of our lives and, and this is the kicker, I think this is the one that Americans hate. We're responsible for our choices. We want all the frills of liberty and none of the responsibility. We want to eat trans fat. Give us more bacon, egg, and cheese. Well, we can't help it. I mean, we have a genetic predisposition to love salty foods. My family has a genetic predisposition towards heart disease, and that brings me into the drive-thru every morning. But outside of the genetic limitations and the certain predispositions of country of birth or the family that we're born to, into, and the day of our death, we are totally and completely responsible for our own lives. Thus, we have a free will. Ah, but you say, I can't help the way I am. This is the way God has made me. This phrase is a popular scapegoat that people will use to free themselves from taking responsibility for their life choices. But this won't do. While we may not possess the ability to change our genetic predispositions, unfortunately that has changed today, we nevertheless do possess the responsibility to be self-controlled and not to allow those predispositions to take control of our lives. Today we call things like alcoholism a disease. And, and by the way, I'm not saying that it's not. I'm not suggesting that alcoholism, that, that there aren't people who don't have a predisposition to be addicted to alcohol or drugs or something of that sort. But no disease on earth causes you to drive to the local bar and ingest alcoholic beverages against your own free will. One of the things early on that I got, that I got uh, acquainted with or I found out about being in the ministry was down here in South Florida, especially in our neighborhood, we had a high issue, a big issue with people who had drug addictions to opioids. Now that's becoming national. And so you meet these people, and they would just tell you, I can't get off it. And I'd sit there with them, and I'm like, I don't know anything about drugs. I mean, the only drug I ever took was Advil. I, I never took drugs. Never, never once. I didn't just puff it, Bill Clinton. I was too afraid. I'm not saying I didn't drink alcohol. But I'm telling you, I didn't do drugs, so I didn't know. So they come and they tell me about drug addiction, and I didn't know. And so we called in a fellow from one of our local rehab clinics, and we sat down with him, and I began to just give these heartwarming stories of people who were completely and utterly enslaved by their drug addiction, only to find out that this fellow from a very successful drug clinic said, they have the choice. I didn't know that. And I figured as much, but I, I didn't know it. I didn't know how heroin worked on the body. He said, you know what? His words, not mine. He said, it's going to suck, but he's going to have to lock himself in a room for three days. And he's going to have to just not do it. Nobody ever stops to ask what happens to the person when that drug isn't available, by the way. I always thought that was interesting. Hmm. 
While some certain or while certain people may have an overly active sex drive, we absolutely do not excuse their behavior as nymphomania when they force themselves sexually on persons without their consent. They are expected to be self-controlled. Let me get in your back pockets really quickly. Specifically the men. Let me pick on you. By the way, you're going to see me do this because I lost the clip. So I, I keep doing this. Let me see if I can work it out. Let me talk with our men for a second. Men, you don't, you don't need to nod, okay? So just stay within yourself right now. I don't want you to get in trouble. But men, listen, I'll, I'll, take, the, I'll take the bullet for you right now. Beautiful women didn't die the day that you got married, did they? Don't answer. They didn't die the day that you got married. Wives, you need to know that. Beautiful women didn't die the day your husband married you. Men, you are still sexually attracted to certain women. You still have that inclination, that desire. But you made a commitment to be self-controlled with that desire till death do you part. You have a free will. You may say no. Even if your greatest desire is to look at that, you have a greater desire to choose to be faithful to your covenant. The point is that even our predispositions, be it genetic or psychological, are not an excuse that abdicates our human responsibility to be self-controlled. Well, you say... What about when someone forces me to do something that I don't want to do upon threat of death? Certainly that would be an example of not having a free will. But R.C. Sproul gives a helpful illustration of a Jack Benny skit where Benny was confronted by a robber who said to him, Well, which is it, your money or your life? I'm thinking, Benny replied, I'm thinking. This story, says Sproul, emphasizes that things are not always equal when we make choices. The robber reduces his victim's options to two, money or life. And all things being equal, the victim has no desire to donate his money to the robber. But once death threatened, however, the desire levels change. And the victim has a greater desire to continue living than to keep his wallet. So he hands over his money. Sproul argues that while the victim is coerced by being limited to just two choices, namely his money or his life, that the coercion is not absolute. Just this past week, I saw a woman who was walking down the street. Some of you may have seen the video. She was walking down the street, minding her own business, and a gentleman, I shouldn't say gentleman, I don't know what I was thinking about that, a man ran up to her, pulled out a gun, and tried to take her purse. And she Fought with the robber. I mean, she could have just done this, right? But she made a choice. Luckily, she survived. Nevertheless, she still had a free will. Even when your choices are limited, you are still free and responsible for the choices that you make. So we have a free will even in the worst circumstances when our wills are limited. You'll hear this. It's a little bit more common with us when we say things like, I can't help the way I am. This is where I was born or it's my culture or this is what my family does. None of which will stand as excuses before Almighty God on the day of judgment. You are responsible for your own actions. But here's where the real rub comes in for us as Christians. The Bible teaches us several truths that at first seem to be in contradiction with one another. The first truth that the Bible teaches us is that human beings are totally and completely incapable of doing the good works that God requires. Now I just got through proving to you that you have a free will. And now I'm going to show you that the Bible says, yeah, and you have no ability in yourself to do the good works that God demands. 
The second truth that the Bible teaches us is that we are totally responsible for our sins. So number one, I have no ability to do what God requires and I'm completely responsible for the evil that I do. But there is a third truth. And that is that our free choice to accept Christ as our Savior and follow Him as His disciples is totally and completely the work of God. So I want to take these three truths. I want to give them to you this morning. Number one, truth number one. Let's look at this one. The Bible teaches that human beings are totally and completely incapable of doing the good works that God requires. If you have your Bibles, turn in them to Romans chapter 3, verse 9, and just hold your finger there. Jonathan Edwards... Distinguish between our natural ability and our moral ability. Our natural abilities were those abilities that we possess by virtue of being made human beings. Animals have natural abilities. Yesterday we went and bought Kellen a, a little uh, Spider-Man costume. Oh, he's so cute. We went and bought the costume. And uh, it has these wings on it. He said, Daddy, I have wings now. I can fly. And I wanted to really make sure that he understood he did not possess the natural ability to fly. When I walked in to the back room, despite all of the things that I had told him, here he was on the edge of the table like this. And I said, Kellen, you do not possess the natural ability to fly. God didn't give you that. You also did not possess the natural ability for skin melanin. Now go put sunscreen on and we will talk more about your costume. So these natural abilities are those abilities that we possess. Some animals can fly. Some animals can live underwater. Others have the natural ability to change their appearances according to their surrounding. It's just what they have. These abilities are possessed naturally and are not the result of a choice. They're not the result of a choice. They're natural abilities. LeBron James has a natural ability to jump. I do not possess a natural ability to jump. No jokes about white men, whatever. <laughs> However, moral ability concerns mankind, not animals. And the Bible teaches us that we have no ability in ourselves to please God, that our wills, our free will, is in bondage to sin. Now hold on just a minute, you say... I know plenty of people who are not Christians who are good people. Are you telling me that just because they're not Christians that they cannot do good works? No. I'm telling you that they cannot please God. And those are different things. Hebrews 11.6 says this. Without faith. It is impossible to please God. Good works, or what should be more properly called civil works, are a gift of God's common grace given to all men and women everywhere to restrain human beings from being as utterly evil as they may possibly be. Yes, all sorts of non-Christian people adopt children, fight for injustice, free captives from captivity, cure diseases, risk their lives to save other lives, and give much of their money away to the poor. But these civil works are not the works that God is after. If today you are trying to impress God 
by showing him how much you donated to the Carolina flood relief. And that's all you got? You're condemned. You say, but what if I have more of those good works than the bad works? Well, number one, you don't. But let's say you do for sake of argument. Without faith, specifically faith in Christ alone, it is impossible. Imposible. How do you say it in Creole? Imposible. Is that good? Imposible. Imposible. Am I saying it wrong? You know, blunt. I learned what blunt was. I had to, why are you all laughing? You want to know how many, you want to know how many Haitian people are in our church? I just say blunt, and then everybody starts laughing, and they know what I'm talking about. We just found out our church is majority Creole speaking. There was this guy who used to call me blunt. Whenever I'd pay my taxes, or pay my toll to go over to uh, Flanagan's on the beach, he'd say, blunt, blunt, man, what's up? I thought he was like, like, that's my boy. Like, that's what I thought he meant. I didn't know until I asked one of my friends what blah means. It means white boy is what he meant. Blah! <laughs> Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So you can do all of the things you want to do, but, and that's all according to your free will. And yes, but you will not please God with these works. Yes, many people do these things. But these civil works are not the works that God is after. God wants us to trust in him, drawing near to him through the cross of Jesus Christ, who by the eternal spirit has perfected once and for all those who are being sanctified. That is to say that the only thing that makes you a good person is whether or not you are in Christ. If you don't have Christ, you have no righteousness. You say, I don't like that. Okay, now open your Bible. Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Oh boy, they had the right religion. They even had the very covenants of God. They circumcised themselves on the eighth day of being born. That circumcision was a separation from the pagan world. They knew exactly what God wanted, and many of them tried to keep that law down to the very letter. In fact, there was one young man who came to Jesus and said, I have kept everything in the law. I've done it all. Paul says about himself, as to the law of God, I was, Paul says, I was blameless. You couldn't point to anything I had done wrong. And Paul asks the question, well, then, does that make you any better off? No, he says, not at all. That you're here today in church does not make you better off. It makes you more responsible for the message you've heard and what you do with it. For we have already charged, says Paul, that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Now note that word, because sin is not simply the bad thing. It's not about badness. You know, today we talk about what's bad and what's good, and we allow society. But sin is a completely different matter altogether. Sin is what God has declared good... And sin is your, listen, important word, it is your status as being completely unclean before him. That's what sin is. Sin is separation from God. Sin is based upon God's commands and our ability to live up to them, not on good and bad. You say, no, wait a minute, now. I'm, I'm, I'm confused. Are you saying that God doesn't want us to do good things? No, certainly God wants us to do good things. But sin is a matter of your relationship with him. 
It is your heart that says, I will not obey. Listen, I will not obey you. Not it. Not commands. You. Sin is about you and God. Sin is personal. It's not about checks and balances. It's not about how good you are and how many things you do. It's about you and God. And if you want this thing reconciled with God, don't show him good works because he doesn't care about them. Show him his son. It is through Christ that we draw near to God. So listen to what Paul says. As it is written, this is the Bible's truth from the very foundation of its writing, from Genesis all the way, that none is righteous, no, not one. Righteous, what does that mean? It's a legal word, and it means to be justified. You're standing there with a judge, and the judge says whether you're justified or not justified. And he says, no one's righteous. No one is forgiven before God. No one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. My cousin, he seeks God on the boat. He doesn't. He seeks his own pleasures. My aunt, she seeks God when she's at the nail salon. No, she doesn't. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, how much more does Paul have to say? What about the Pope? I mean, after all, look at his hat. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Now, just by the by, I want you to see something. The Bible makes the sins of the mouth a various sin indeed. Get away with this idea of sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. God will hold us accountable for every misspoken word. Word sin is a particularly despicable sin to God. Note that the first several commandments focus on a declaring of God as Savior and a shutting up of worshiping any other God. And the third commandment is not to take his name in vain. Their feet are swift to shed blood. You say, I'm not a murderer, but Jesus says, do you hate your brother? In their paths ruin and are in their Excuse me, in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no, listen, here is the last part, there is no fear of God before their eyes. If you do all of the good things that you think are good in this life, and you have no fear of God, there is nothing but a devil's hell that awaits you. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law of God first proves to everyone that we are sinful. God never desired a robotic outward following of his commandments, but rather a relationship with his people, whereby our love for God and others is what compels us to keep his commandment. What was the greatest, or what is the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment was not, thou shalt not commit adultery. say, but that's a biggie. The greatest commandment was not to... Not murder. Thou shalt not murder. That, that, that's a biggie. Yeah, it's a biggie. The greatest commandment was to love God with your whole being. Think about that. Have you given to God your whole being? 
everything? Your heart? Who owns your mind? When no one is there, think about that, all of the good deeds that you do before men. But what about when you're in the silence of your room? What about your mind? Do you love God with that? You say, yeah, I, I, I read Bible verses, yes, but do you hate your brother? Because a man, says, says John, a man cannot hate his brother and love God. If he hates his brother, the love of God is not in him. Love God with all your being and love your neighbor as yourself. The only thing that the law has ever been able to produce is the knowledge that we can't keep it. So the Apostle Paul tells us that the law of God charges the whole world, is under the bondage of sin, so much so that even the greatest civil works, adoption of children, fighting for injustice, freeing captives from captivity, being a social justice war on YouTube, curing disease, risking your own life to save the life of another, giving away your money to the homeless man on the corner, is for God nothing more than filthy rags. The word for filthy rag is a menstruation rag in the Bible. You say, that's too graphic. That's God's word. You deal with it. He wants you to see it. You, before him, have nothing. You say, how are then we going to begin this Christian right, life if that's what you're saying? Okay, you say, if we're in bondage to sin and it's impossible to please God, God can't find fault with us. I mean, he knows we can't do it. But truth number two is this. We are totally responsible for our sin. Turning your Bibles just a couple chapters over to Romans 9, 19. To Romans 9, 19. Let me give you a little background on that passage. Paul, who is the author of this book, assumes that those who hear of God's election in salvation will take issue with the idea that God finds fault with us when he knows that we do not possess the ability to do what he desires. He is thinking, forethinking, that when he tells you, you cannot please God, that the question that you are asking is this, well then how can God find fault with me? I'm good, right? He knows I can't do it. But Paul has just finished arguing that God's choice of individuals is never based upon anything that that individual has done, but simply on his sovereign mercy. In the case of Jacob and Esau, they were the twins of Rebekah. It says simply that before they had ever been born... So that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She, that is Rebecca, was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So Paul says God chooses Jacob. He just chooses him. He didn't look into the future and see all the good works. He just chose him because why? Because he loved him. Well, what else? Because he loved him. Well, well, how come he doesn't tell us why? Because he loved him. And because the secret things are for God and not for you and I. But then he goes into the next part. He deals with the issue of Esau. Well, how can he hate Esau? If he chose Jacob, and he knew that Jacob couldn't come to him, why did he hate Esau? And he gives the example of the curious situation with Pharaoh. Paul says that God has not chosen, citing Pharaoh as an example of God's sovereign choice to lead people in bondage of their sin, 
people, some people, for salvation. God raised Pharaoh up, says Paul, for the very purpose that he might show his power in Pharaoh and that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That is, that God made Pharaoh to harden his heart and Pharaoh hardened his heart. The original story found in the early chapters of Exodus, we are told that God is the one who sovereignly chooses for Pharaoh to harden his heart. And that this is exactly what Pharaoh's greatest desire is in the moment that God decides to liberate his people. So we have two things going on. They're parallel. We see here in Exodus 7, 3 through 4, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with my mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my people, the Israelites. We see God hardening Pharaoh's heart. God has revealed that to us. And if God had not revealed that to us, we would have never seen this truth. This, this arm that I'm showing is, is sort of the, it is the, the, the uh, timeline. Pharaoh, this is God hardening Pharaoh's heart from before the foundation of the world. Why? So that he might get glory. But then in Exodus 8.15, we read, But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, speaking of the relief for the Jews, he hardened his heart. So now we see God said I'd harden his heart, and now we see that Pharaoh's hardening his heart. And if God had not revealed to us that that was what he was doing, all we would ever see is that Pharaoh's hardening his heart. And let me tell you, this morning, all I see is that many people in this church today have hardened their heart against God. And I don't know whether or not God has hardened you from before the foundation of the world, and neither do you. All you know is that you have a responsibility today to repent of your wickedness and turn to Jesus Christ for salvation. That's all you should concern yourself with. Romans 9.19. So then you will say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Now listen to how Paul answers this question. I love it. He's following his Jewish heritage. He answers a question with a question. Someone asked a rabbi one day, why do Jews always answer questions with questions? And the rabbi said, why not answer a question with a question? Watch what Paul does. You will say to me, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? In other words, you don't get the answer. Do you understand why God is merciful to you and why he hardened Pharaoh's heart? The answer to that question belongs to Almighty God. It's not you. You don't get to answer. You say, but I really want to know, but stop wasting your time wondering why you were saved and not others. Instead, offer yourself to him as a living sacrifice. Paul answers with a question. He says here, oh man, Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? He answers it with another question. Has the potter no right over the clay to make over the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Another question. In other words, he's simply asking this. You are a created piece of clay. Who are you to ask the God of the universe why he did one thing and not another? We're dust. Don't you see that? 
How can you ever love Jesus Christ with a divine love until you understand you are but clay? And that God has made you his workmanship. You belong to him. He says, what if he wants to use one for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, listen to what he says, I love this part. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? What does he mean by that? He means this. When you look at Pharaoh and you see that Pharaoh never turns towards God and you acknowledge that you have turned towards God in the salvation offered to you by Jesus Christ, you ought to praise and glorify God, not yourself. It's the work of God. What do we sing to God? Because God did it. Why are we happy today? Because God made, God made me. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, 4. But God made us alive when we were dead. Well, you say, where does this leave me today, pastor? You're telling me that my free choice to accept Christ as my Savior, is wholly and completely the work of God. Is that what you're saying, Pastor? Yes, that's what I'm saying. But you're saying I'm responsible for responding today. Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's what I'm saying. Look at Romans 9, 22 and 23 again. What if God... Note the assumption that Paul makes here, that God is involved with every detail of the story of Pharaoh. What if God, not Pharaoh, but what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, had endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. In other words, why did God even make Pharaoh if he was going to disobey God? To put him up as an example of a vessel for destruction. That's not fair. You, who are, Go back, who are you but clay to question what God does? You say, God put Pharaoh, Paul's saying, what if God put Pharaoh up his entire life, the way he hardened himself, the loss of his son, the loss of his kingdom, the loss of his slaves, what if he did, he did all that so that we might look and say, praise God for what you did for me? Yes! Because God loves his people. And those who are not his people are under his wrath. God loves you so much that he has endured with much patience vessels of wrath. You say, what do you mean? That entire contest between God and Pharaoh was Pharaoh saying, uh-uh, I don't care. I'm not letting him go. Oh, oh, you're not? Okay, blood. Blood in your water, in your drinking water. Nope, I'm not letting him go. Okay, frogs, gnats, flies, I probably got it out of order. Darkness, fire raining down from heaven, and finally the death of your child. And you say, no. I ask you this morning, does God have to send gnats into your life to get you to respond to him? Does he have to... Send darkness? Or will you not receive the call today? In order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. That God has loved you enough to call you beforehand for glory, all the while allowing others to remain in their sins, is the beginning of all Christian worship. If 
you leave not grasping this this morning, that your salvation is completely the work of God, you leave without understanding why you come to his table to worship him. You must understand that God has saved sinners who truly love him for what he has done. It is the single truth of God's sovereign mercy to choose us for salvation that Paul says should propel us into lifelong worship of God, whereby we present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God as our spiritual worship. In chapter 12, Paul says, in light of these mercies, so same book, what are the mercies? Everything he just described about God saving sinners. And he says, in light of these mercies, the only reasonable thing for you to do is worship and love God because he saved you. It's the only reasonable thing to do. If you leave this morning with a hard heart, you're responsible for it. Pharaoh was responsible for it. Say, but God hardened it. Yeah, but Pharaoh was responsible. You say, how can God hold us accountable? Remember the answer. My, my answer is not today to give you why God does it. My answer is to tell you what Scripture tells us. And Scripture tells us, who are you to ask? If you leave with a hard heart, not receiving to follow Jesus Christ, you're responsible. You know only your own desires for your life. You don't know God's desires for your life. Save for that. Except for that. That God desires right now more than anything. That you turn from your wicked ways to follow his son Jesus Christ. Peter says this. He says it's this very moment. This very moment is the day of salvation. The reason why your heart beats in your chest is not so you can finish the project at work or finish your schooling or love your children. It's so you will repent of your sins and come to Christ. If you harden your heart, you are responsible. It is your choice based upon your greater desire to rebel than your desire to repent. But if you do come this morning, I'll tell you the sweetness of it. If you do come this morning to receive Christ Jesus, turn not your eyes to yourself, but begin the Christian life focused squarely on the one who has made you alive in Christ. To be his workmanship, created in the likeness of his son. Praise God, what a great salvation he has given to us. Let's pray. Father, you saved me. I have nothing to give to you. From before the foundation of the world, you wrote my name in the Lamb's book of life. There are people here today who you have written in the Lamb's book of life. They have rejected the story, Lord God, but it is you who gives hearts. And hearts to, to receive, eyes to see. It is you who will enable them by the work of your Holy Spirit. You, Jesus, are the one who said, no one can come to the Father unless the Father grants it to them. And so we pray, Father, that you might grant to them today those who have hardened their hearts against you. That they might receive Jesus. If you're in your pew right now, I'm not going to ask anyone to come down. If you're in your pew right now, I want everyone to bow their heads, to close their eyes, to just stay seated. And I want to just talk with you right now. You know, we begin the Christian life in a prayer, but that prayer is to be born out of a heart. A heart that desires God and that hates sin. Do you hate sin this morning? Do you desire God 
then repent. Confess your sins to God. Say it. Say it as bad as it is. God knows. Say it as bad as it is. Say, God, forgive me. Because he will. And pledge to live as Christ's disciple. From this moment on, clinging to the faith that is offered to us by the body and blood of Jesus Christ. In just a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. If you prayed to receive Christ as your Savior this morning, to, for, to ask for Him to forgive you of your sins and to receive Jesus as your Savior, if you prayed that this morning, come to the fellowship of the Lord's table and eat with joy the body and drink with joy the blood of Christ. And let it nourish you with the peace that you are saved because of Christ. Father, you are the Lord. We praise you.